Hi, I'm Tom Flynn. I'm Lori Feathers. And welcome to Lost in Redonda. Hi, Lori. How's it going today? It's going pretty well, Tom. I'm really excited to talk with you about Javier Moraes' last novel, Thomas Nevinson. Um, I think we both uh, confess to having some mixed emotions about this one. So uh, I think it's going to be a really interesting discussion. Yeah. Um, we're recording this two days after it's a pub date. Um, and yesterday, our episode on uh, Berta Isla, sort of the uh, companion or twinned novel um, with this one, um, that episode went up. Yeah, a lot of emotion. I mean, not just mixed, like just a lot of emotions, I would say, uh, around this novel. Um, one of those strange things, reading something that's likely the last thing you'll read from I mean, especially an author for me that I've been reading for so long and has been such a critical part of my reading life. Um, it's very strange to get to that last page and feel a last page from it, you know? Yeah, I agree. Um, I read it um, last year uh, in manuscript form and then reread it for our episode today. And I can't say that um, the second read through kind of clarified my emotions about it. Um, so (laughs) for whatever that's worth, I don't know if a third or fourth time would, would either. It's a, uh, I think we'll get into it in more depth. I mean, it's signature Moraes. I mean, the writing, the themes, the interiority, but there's just something about it to me that feels a little bit um a little bit like I wanted his last novel to be something else. Yeah. I mean, I think I absolutely agree that it's and we'll get into this, but it is a very different novel from a lot of what else he has done. Um I'm trying I'm trying to rack my brain. I can't really think of any of his novels that work or discuss things quite like this one. I think, I think Berta was getting to that. And I, I think I brought that up in the last one that there was like a big discussion of state power. Um, I think that is very much at the forefront of this novel. Um, I mean, it's almost, it's almost more blatantly prescriptive in a way than his other works, um, which are more, meanderings along different winding moral paths. This one seems to have a very particular outlook, um, which is unusual for his work. But yeah, I think we're doing a lot of pretties. So um, to uh, get things moving, um, I'll just do a really quick summary of um, of a significant portion of the novel. Um, we're just going to say this up front. We will uh, get into some of the major turns in the novel that folks may not want to um, hear from us if they haven't read it yet. So we'll give a bit of a spoiler warning when we're going to start launching into those portions um, more explicitly. Um, so 
feel free to listen until we get to that point. Um, and my summary will not really get into any of that um, uh, at, at this moment. Um, though, of course, if you don't want to have any of it spoiled, by all means, get to your local indie, buy it, read it, and then then give it a listen. Um, and I'm being very clear when I say get yourself to your local indie. Local can mean many things these days, but indie really just means the one thing. So keep that in mind too. Um, okay, so Tomas Devinson. Um, as we said, this is the intertwined, twinned uh, companion to uh, the novel Berta Isla. Um, it picks up about three years after Berta Isla wraps. Um, Tomas has been working at the embassy, seeing Berta and his children every so often. Um, it seems he has more of a life with Berta. Uh, I mean, not much one, but more of one with Berta than with the children who are at this point, you know, preteen to teens and not especially interested in what this basically stranger um is interested in, in, in being involved in their lives. Um, and uh, Tomas is uh, called up by his former boss, uh, Bertie Tupra. Uh, Tupra comes to Madrid and, you know, <laughs> talking about prithies, um, the usual sort of talking back and forth, half meanings, full meanings, what have you, um, lays out a job for Tomas, asking him to come back inside, sort of. But the job is to go to a town in Spain and identify uh, which of three women is a uh, underground uh, ETA slash IRA operative uh, that took part in a major bombing back in 1987. This novel is taking place in 97, um, which I have to say is such a weird thing about these two novels is the actual time stamping. Like you get a sense in the other novels about when approximately things are taking place. Um, you can somewhat date them by like cell phones and things like that. But to be so explicitly in, in a set time, but also time and dates play such a huge role in this novel, much as they did in Berta. Um, it's one of the things I think sets these two novels apart from a lot of Marius's other work. Well, I, I think that especially um, Tomas has a lot of reticence about going back and becoming active again. And I think one of the, one of the things that, that we keep seeing emphasized is that he's being asked to somehow um do a retributive kind of act for a crime that happened 10 years ago. And apart from the fact um, that he's very uncomfortable that he's essentially being uh, asked to identify and, and thereby have assassinated a woman um, is this kind of you know, 10 years have lapsed, you know, maybe if it is one of these women that I'm going to the town of Rouen in Spain to spy on, you know, maybe, maybe she's changed, you know, maybe she's sorry for what she did. And so I, the, the 10 years I think here is, is really important. No, absolutely. Um, and there's quite a bit of discussion that, uh, that Tomas and Tupper go back and, I mean, a lot of it's interior, but 
I think I frequently think that in the conversations with Tupra are even the interior thoughts are part of that larger conversation um, to the degree that Tupra in some ways may even be participating in them since he, he reads and in some ways controls Tomas. So, so cleanly and, and <laughs> in such impressive ways. Um, but the idea of, of hatred of emotion behind how you feel about an act or a person and how that can wane over time. I mean, Tomas throughout the novel, you know, reflects on the idea that no one can hold on to hatred for very long, that it's, it's the rare instance where you can hate someone for something long enough. Um, but Tupra's stance is that the, his, the institutions that he works for, that he represents, don't actually hate. They simply remember. They are an archive. They keep track of who did what when and meet out consequences. I wouldn't even say justice per se, but consequences as a result, which is, it's, it gets into some moral philosophy that um, is a little bit more plainly put in this novel than has been in other in, in others of uh, Marius's uh, body of work. But yeah, so uh, after much back, a, a bit of a back and forth, a bar scene in which Chupra um, is eating a lot of potatoes, eating a lot of patatas bravas, which is totally fair because patatas bravas are delicious. Um, it's actually reading that scene. I was like, I have not had patatas bravas in a very <laughs> long time. Go ye to your local tapas restaurant. Absolutely. Um, but it's, it's as usual, you know, these sort of food settings are frequently opportunities for Maria's to be very funny about human social interaction and how people behave in crowds. And yeah, it, it, it's, it's a great scene. Um, and in some ways the whole conversation is a bit of a seduction. Um, I mean, Tupra is employing a lot of the same language and, and Tomas knows it too, but Tupra is employing a lot of the same language that he used. Um, and even Peter Wheeler used to get Tomas interested and then eventually like locked into the life of a secret agent or spy or however you want to refer to it. Um, all, you know, 20 plus years previously. Um, and that Tomas used to justify his actions, um, whenever he talked to Berta about his actions uh, throughout Berta Isla. Um, Tomas eventually agrees, uh, goes along with it, and takes off to Ruan um, to figure out which of these three women had a role in this bombing and uh, then to deal with it. It's made pretty clear that once he identifies the person, um, that they will be eliminated, they will be killed, um, which he wrestles with throughout the novel. And yeah, he he goes uh, through various means. He begins to, and one of the interesting things about what the novel is doing too, though, is because it's three women and because they're such different people and op- occupying different places within this town, you really are getting like, scenes of a town, scenes of um, all these different lives and the lives that different people can lead. But it's, it's a very, it's, it's kind of a bit of a a house of mirrors and that all any of the three could be this person who committed, who participated in this gruesome act 10 years previously, but all three are living such distinct lives within this town, within this society. It's, 
don't know. It's, it's a very clever way for Marius to sort of dive into um, a lot of the things that he's concerned himself with in the past, I think. The choices people make, who they are, what they are on the inside, you know, the whole what what you will look like the next day, how you, what you will change into. Yeah, the idea that an adult could be such a different person 10 years after and like 10 years after such a radical moment, um, or are they that different of a person is a really, I mean, it's juicy and it's very much the kind of thing that Mar- it make, would make sense for Marius to dig into, but he does it very differently here than I think he's done in any of his previous work. Explain. His previous work, I feel like, was dealing much, it was taking so much more thoroughly, it was taking place so much more thoroughly inside, like inside of the protagonist's uh, head. You know, we, and there's still that here, that is still happening, but it's also put against real world or real life events. I mean, he he is interweaving this into our actual history. Uh, the Good Friday Agreement is just a, a year away. And that's part of the concern and why, you know, Tupra is interested in doing a favor for someone on Spanish soil is that the person they're after is uh, half North Irish, half um, Basque, which is why they have the ETA IRA component. But the IRA bit is also a, of a concern to them, uh, to them being, um, well, the them's interesting. Is it them just Tupra and the realm? Is it Tupra Nevinson and the realm? Where does Nevinson fit into all of that, which he questions throughout the novel? But there's um, also there's also an intimation or a supposition on... Um, Tomas's part that Chupra has just kind of gone rogue here. I mean, that this is not a sanctioned, um, even by the intelligence service, even by, um, you know, British intelligence, that he's doing kind of a favor for this guy, George, um, who uh, is trying to track down um, the culprit, the, the, the missing the missing person, I guess the the other two people that were involved in this bombing, um, I think two men have been apprehended or or killed or something. But um, she's escaped, and so there is this kind of doubt um, on Tomas's mind, based on what Tupper said, that you know maybe this is not. I, I want to. Above board would not be the right thing because I mean, does on, on, on the books, it's not yeah, on the books, or, exactly. or, or 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 as on the books as a you know espionage operation on foreign soil, foreign ally soil. At that could be, yeah. I mean, he he definitely Thomas definitely cuts back and forth, and I mean, very much seems to land on the idea that this is off the books, but he also reflects on how much the superiors would even want to know. Um, and how much they wanted to know when he was working for them more explicitly when he was in the thick of it, um, when he was sharp. They go to some pains to say that Tomas has more more than somewhat lost his edge um, <laughs> throughout this operation. Um, so why do you think Tomas ultimately, after a lot of discussion with Tupra and his non-committal uh, parting, with Tupra at that time and then eventually agreeing to do it. Why do you think he ultimately does? Is it because he's feeling kind of lost and, and, and 
like an outsider, like we talked about with Berta Isla? Yes. I mean, I think he wants to be someone again. I mean, he's, it's made very clear at the start that he is doing his job at the embassy. Um, he does not have very many friends or any real friends or acquaintances there. Um, there is a young woman at the embassy that he has a physical relationship with. Um, but that's about the extent of it by, you know, any real measure. Um, he's living a ghost life. I mean, he's, he's not, he does not want to be inside anymore, but he can't bear to be outside. This is an opportunity to come back inside and be someone, not a nobody. Yeah. I think that, um, that the idea of substantiality or, or significance or, or somebody is important because he doesn't really have that in his personal life either. He's really not a person of substance to Berta. I mean, they, they live in separate abodes. Sometimes they'll like sleep together, but it doesn't really, he, there's not a lot of like emotional ties. He's lost really any kind of emotional connection with his kids. Mm -hmm. Um, and then he's just kind of got this, you know, this busy work job at the embassy in Madrid. So yeah, he's he has lost his substantiality or his significance in terms of I think how he how he thinks about himself. Which is which is interesting in that in in our last episode I mentioned how I I wasn't sure how much I don't know if I use this exact phrase but how much of there there when it how much there there is there when it relates to Nevinson that part of his ability to be such a perfect mimic and be such a good agent is that there is no core self. Um, and that allows him to fully inhabit the character he has to inhabit, um, which we see a bit of actually um, when he goes to Ruan under his new identity and um, there is a very immediate shift from I and I to he. And the he is the cover, uh, the man named Centurion. And it starts to blend at points throughout the rest of the novel. But they're at the kind of critical moments of decision. Uh, Nevinson refers to himself, the I, as Nevinson, as that man with this past, with all these previous experiences, the man who has killed twice in the past that, that he discloses very early on. Um, only men at that point. Um, but... But that that person versus the cover identity whose job it is is to un- to be this English teacher in this you know town in Northwest Spain, um, but whose job it is to also figure out which of three women in town happen to be a uh, former or perhaps current and just hidden um, terrorist. Another really I think funny part in the book when it's Tupra and George and. Thomas speaking, they talk about his cover name and, you know, George says it's going to be Centurion. And, you know, Thomas is like, that is such an awkward and bizarre name. It's, it's sure to draw attention, but George has just the opposite impression. He was like, no, it can't be something that's common because that seems suspicious. So it's it, it was a little a bit of a comedic back and forth about the pomposity of the name. Yeah, I gotta say, um, 
Marius does not treat diplomats well in his novels. They, specifically Spanish diplomats, come across as um, just, I don't know, just real, real suits. But like I say that in the most pejorative meaning of suit possible, I think just, ah, uh, they are not, they're not especially pleasant or inter- like they're, they're interesting for how unpleasant and how sort of um, crass in a way they are, which is of course funny when you're talking about someone who's supposed to be practicing the art of diplomacy. Right. Um, yeah. I, 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 <laughs> I did. I did enjoy that. He, Marius's touch when it comes to humor is so good. Like it's just such a, it's so deft. Um, yeah, they're gonna be. I think they're gonna be more than a few moments in the podcast where I get a little <laughs> maudlin as we're recounting some of uh, Marius's gifts. But yeah, I mean, we can go into a little bit more before we get. I mean, there's a good deal more plot that we can chat about before we get into any serious spoiler territory. Um, We could kind of talk about the situation with the three women. There are two of the women are married um, and the third is not, they all live in the same town of Rouen. I I, I take it that George somehow doesn't know what this woman looks like or what her current name is, but he has been able to pin down that, she is in Rouen and she is alive. Right. What it's for, however they determined it, they determined that the person moved to this town um, not long after the bombing um, in 87. And that's when all three of these women appeared in this town. We're also dealing with a time period. And this is explicitly mentioned a couple of times in the novel where the state didn't necessarily keep, such close ties on all of your comings and goings or rather digital footprints didn't exist the same way. So it was much easier for someone just to sort sort of show up one day and then over time slowly become integrated into, into a place and not necessarily, unless they want to be forthcoming, you'd be hard pressed to figure out exactly where they came from or, or what they were doing previously. So that seems as much as Nevinson can figure out, that seems to be how, how they focused on these three women. Um, but yes, they don't have, there's no physical description of the woman. There's no sense of what she sounds like. Um, she is a ghost. As for, they know her name. They know that she's half North Irish, half, um, half Basque, but that's all they seem to know. Um, and we also don't find out till much later uh, in the novel, what her actual role in the bombing was and why perhaps she might be seen as so dangerous still uh, to this day. Um, in fact, a lot of the novels casting some aspersions on the concerns around how dangerous she may may or may not be at this point in time. Um, but on the topic of of the town, there is a line in here that made me grin really, really hard, where he's kind of descri- he's basically describing a provincial city, uh, not very large. Um, it has its own rhythms. Um, I mean, he kind of is describing something of a conservative place, which is totally, I mean, is what it is. But he's constantly drawing comparisons to the the town that he hid in um, during those years that he was dead to Berta. Um, but also in some ways, he's comparing it to Oxford. He keeps coming back to these small cities with a river running through them. Um, and so he was describing uh, the apartment he's in has a view of a bridge over the river. That seems to be one of the the major thoroughfares for the city. And he goes, um, 
As the day progressed, the rhythm of the place slowed, grew more languid, and those January evenings resembled, quote, Sunday's exile from the infinite, end quote, as a poet or a novelist once said. I can't quite remember which. <laughs> Do you remember who said that? No, I don't. He did. In All Souls, when he was describing Oxford, it's a line lifted from one of his own novels that his character is now reciting back in this novel. Good recall, Tom. Oh, I had to look it up. I just remember that it was, it stuck out to me and also stuck out to me that he was giving it attribution without giving it attribution. So I just did a quick search and there it was. And I looked at my wife and just went that and cursed. Like, I can't. He has so much fun with these things and it's great. But it's also, this is also an interesting way of getting to the fact that, um, I think this novel has the the most references to other works out of all of his work. Um, the afterward at the back lists any number of um, sources he used. Um, there's a paragraph in here that appears in a few different forms that comes from um, De Lampedusa, uh, Eliot, uh, the poem by Eliot that became a, a key part of his um being recruited into the secret service comes up constantly. Um, but he is using Macbeth and Richard the third. I would say about every 30 to 40 pages, one of them reappears. Yeah. The um, Shakespeare is everywhere evident. Like it is in, I think most of his novels. Yeah. But in, in such a more oblique way, which I think also speaks to Nevinson himself. Um, I think a lot of his other characters sort of pulled those, even Tupra, pulled those characters into themselves and would deploy the quote on occasion, um, but almost in a way that they understood it. I feel like Nevinson is still grappling with these quotes, um, the the ideas behind them in ways that, I don't know, again, goes cuts back to the idea of like, what is substantial about Tom Nevinson, which is also interesting as he gets referred to as Tom a lot in this novel, which he never was before. And I don't know, frankly, through me uh, just ever so slightly. Um, but yeah, so, I mean, we were, we were starting to talk about the, the, or we were until I <laughs> took us on this little winding uh, detour. Winding um, river. Yes. Um, the three women. So, one of them, the unmarried woman, uh, is the owner of a restaurant and uh, is in some ways the first one that Centurion makes uh, contact with um, and almost immediately begins a physical relationship with uh, Inez. Um, another is Celia, uh, who is married um, and works at the same school as Centurion. Um, and then the last um, is Maria, correct? Am I blanking yes. on Maria? Yes, yes, Maria. It's also interesting. I I think there are more characters in this novel than in a lot of his other works, which was interesting. I considered making myself a little cast a character sheet at one point. What do you make of the fact that Inez is constantly described as a gigantic woman? I mean, not, not so much like obese or anything, but just kind of like, I, I was picturing like an Amazonian type of, you know, like, a tall, solid, a, a big woman. And there seems to be a lot of emphasis on that. Perhaps it's just like a plot point because 
we know down the road that um, Tomas tries to tries to affect the plan and um, has second thoughts, and then he has some heart, some difficulty maneuvering her inert body. But I, I don't know. I just wondered if you had thoughts on that. He spends a lot of time on the physicality of all three women, just in, just in very different ways. Uh, Celia. Um, he describes as being, um, I think, on the shorter side, but also like plump. Um, and, but he constantly, like, I mean, I think I get the feeling that uh, Nevinson and maybe by extension Marius um, found most female forms um, <laughs> attractive and desirable um, in their in their own respective ways. Um, and Maria, he. He goes at some lengths, I mean, almost to the same extent that he describes um, the giant nature or the oversized nature of Inez. He goes at some lengths to talk about how arresting and beautiful Maria is, but that there are no, there is no one feature that is in and of itself beautiful or especially exemplary or, or what have you, that there's just something arresting and commanding about her. Um, so, I mean, got I think an aura. Yeah. I mean, I think in some ways, um, I mean, they all serve their purposes in terms of, in terms of how the novel progresses. Um, I think though that Inez, you know, unmarried, having arrived in this town, um, setting up a restaurant, uh, I think he's trying to even, set her apart that much more from the rest of the town um, by having her be taller than most of the men in the town. Not, you know, Amazonian to a certain degree, absolutely. But even, even more than that, like her, her teeth are almost too big and her eyes are oversized. He describes like her pupils being almost entirely too large. Um, It gives this really odd impression. I mean, he even thinks like, a centurion even thinks about like given her mouth how uncertain he is he would want to kiss her and put his tongue in her mouth um like the, it's it's interesting that he, but at the same time she has a, a desirable quality to her beyond simply his interest in determining whether or not she's his target um yeah i, I you know thinking back on marius's work as a whole um I do think in, I mean, obviously in Berta Isla, since we spent so much time in Berta's head, um, but in this novel as well, I, I don't think he had poorly sketched or, or two-dimensional female characters in his previous work, but I, I, it could also just be a recency bias, but these women feel so full, like so you know, completely fleshed out in a way, um, in a way that I don't know that some of the other female characters he's written have. Um, I just want to make a point because I'm afraid I'll forget it. But um, you know how I said in our Berta Isla conversation that I had remembered the book being like, just 100% told from Birch's point of view, but there is actually like 
a big, I think, almost 80-page chapter that's very important to Berta Isla that's from Thomas's point of view. Um, I really think this book may have benefited by giving Berta in this one similar a similar opportunity to to learn like what she was thinking at at this time and whether she saw any changes in Tomas like after he came back and whether she thought that he was just you know just feeling incredibly out of sorts and was kind of lost and stumbling through life and and how her feelings for him may or may not have evolved and kind of her hesitation to like getting fully intimate with him again. Um, I don't know. Maybe I'm just trying to be like, you know, fair's fair. Give her, give her the same shot that we gave Thomas in the, in the, you know, the same, the the name titled book. But I do think it might've been a little bit of a, a fuller picture. Had we, had we heard from her. I agree. I mean, Berta is not very much in this novel at all. I mean, she is in his thoughts um, a good bit, but I think it'd be, I think you'd be hard pressed to say that her presence is felt in this, in the novel in the same way that um, Tomas's absence was felt um, throughout Berta Isla. Um, even though I think she's a much more, I personally find Berta to be a much more interesting character and person than Tomas, but that might just be my own. Yeah. Do you think, do you think Moraes liked Tomas? Do you think he had respect for Tomas or do you think he purposely wrote Tomas as kind of an empty suit? I don't know. I honestly, I'm honestly not sure. Um, I, but I think the fact that I can't really answer it probably says that he didn't much, doesn't necessarily much care for, if not for Tomas and the kind of person that he is. Um, asserting himself in the world in such a background way and just being fundamentally dishonest with the people who are supposed to be the most important in his life, his wife and his children, his family, his father, who, you know, barely knows what he's doing or, goes to the grave having not seen his son again. Um, I don't think that Marius would much have cared for that person in his own life. Um, I mean, but having said that, like, again, this book is doing a lot of work and a lot of discussion of, you know, what does it mean to be, what is the difference between state sanctioned violence and, um, the violence of um, of insurgent groups. Like, what does it mean to be an insurgent? There's even a bit at the end where uh, Tupra, uh, kind of taking shots at the United States, talks about how um, the U.S. has always had a sympathy for those against the European powers. That you'll notice that they never call them terrorists. They call them boss separatists. They call them, um, you know, insurgents. You know, some of the words I just used um, and that that line in the sand that Tupra is drawing that in some ways, you know, maybe not entirely, but to a certain degree, uh, after nine 11, the U S started to adopt, or at least adopt towards a, spe- a very specific type of, um, group with a specific religious or, um, national origin. Um, 
became much more comfortable using. Oh no. It's a strange novel from Marius. I it, it's I like it a lot, actually. I like it far more when then when I when I first started it, I was quite convinced I was going to hate this novel and hate Tomas Nevinson. Um I don't think I hate him at this point. I don't much care for him. Um, but he's a much fuller character than I expected. Um, the novel opens with discussions of folks who almost had opportunities to kill Hitler, but didn't at different points on his rise to power. Um, and how, how they all in some way regretted it, obviously after the fact. And as I read those chapters, I was just muttering to myself, he's, he's going to justify everything he does by saying that he's stopping the next Hitler. And in a way he does, and in another way he doesn't, it's such, it's a much balder novel. And I don't think it's less nuanced, but it's just a very different animal from what he, what he's done before. It's, it's not shocking that this is this, a novel written by the same person that wrote a heart so white or tomorrow on the battle, but they're, yeah, they're different species of novel, I would say. I'm I'm going to get do a spoiler alert here because I'm I I'm going to probably give away um something that maybe some people don't want to hear if you haven't finished the book but you know he goes back to this um when when he is ineffectual in completing his mission and goes back to Madrid and to Berta uh to the extent that she you know wants him, um, and, and is really with him. Um, you know, there is another terrorist attack and he, you know, goes back to this line of thinking that, you know, did I have the power to prevent something, to prevent a monstrous thing happening by a monstrous individual and, and just failed, you know, could I have, could I have changed history? Would, 20 some people be, be alive today if I had just, if I had just fulfilled my mission. Um, so yeah, it, it kind of, there's kind of a circular thing happening with the book, as you indicated with the way that it opens and then towards the end, the way that he's, he's feeling, um, I guess you'd say some regret. Yeah. It's also interesting. Um, and at that point, at that point, he'd actually stated that he missed being Tomas Nevinson, that he wanted to be Tomas Nevinson again, and not the Tomas Nevinson that was an agent for twenty years, and not the one that, not the one that was somebody, someone within the world. He wanted to go back to the Tomas Nevinson that existed before he was recruited, before his conversation with Wheeler, um, and go back to the Tomas Nevinson that was you know, in love with and partnered to Berta, um, which I think marked a real change in how he approached things and a change in his relationship with Berta. I mean, when he returns after this mission, she is much more open to him as part of her life. I mean, they are probably functioning as close as they can at this point to being a married couple and sharing intimacies to the extent that He's actually, he actually tells her about his mission. Like he opens up in a way that he's not allowed to, um, and that he never had previously and kind of 
lays bare his failure and what the consequence of it. Um, yeah, he and- doesn't get into a lot of detail, but he does tell her that they wanted me to kill a woman and I couldn't do it. Well, and then he also says like, and she's gone on to do something else terrible. Right. And, and, and she knows, and it's so recent that Berta names the location of what took place and knows that, okay, so he was sent to kill this person and that person just committed a terror attack um, that killed 30 plus people. But um, Berta, Berta is relieved. I, th- yeah. I I feel like Berta is glad that he he didn't that he that he that he couldn't kill this person. She, I don't think that she, of course she's not she's not glad that the terrorist attack happened, but I think that she's glad that the man that she um loved and maybe still in some respects loves was unable to kill a woman. Right. Um, and th- that builds off of a conversation they had earlier. Um, there was, I mean, so this is also why I think this is such a strange, strange Marius novel is the, the intertwining with real world events. Um, so obviously, um, Nevinson is sent to ferret out uh, this person who had been involved in an attack 10 years previously, but then while he is on this mission, Etta um, assassinates a local uh, party official, and it sends the entire country into an uproar. Um, and after th- and the one time on this mission that he returns to Madrid and sees Berta, um, they talk about it, and Berta is bloodthirsty uh, at first. She's talking about how you know these people are are savage, are killing people indiscriminately. What is the point of what they're doing and the fear they're spreading? Um, and Tomas pushes her a bit on, you know, how would you handle it? Would you, would you want that person dead, these people dead in advance? You know, how, how, how would you do this? What, what would you do to stop such, such a thing from happening? Um, and Berta somewhat backs off, you know, like, in the heat of the moment, after the fact, the desire for some form of justice, but justice in advance, something to you know prevent it, seems seems too much. I think for for her um, and for her sensibility, which in some ways relieves Tomas that that is what she's like. But I think it also further complicates the decision that he's trying to make in that moment, since he's he's so far removed from the agent he was, you know, not what ten years previous. Throughout Marius's work, he is putting forward these sort of moral quandaries. I mean, we've talked about this a lot um, over the course of this podcast. Um, what is owed? What what does it mean to hold a secret, and what does the mean mean to share that secret with someone else? Does that make them complicit in some regard? Um, someone dies in your arms. Um, what is it that you owe to their family? What is it that you you know you owe to anyone else in that moment? And in these last two novels. He's taken it from the individual and the very, you know, melodramatic in a sense, you know, the, 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 such a tight focus and just blown it out to international intrigue. Um, I mean, he's effectively writing spy novels, outright writing spy novels um, in these last two books, uh, a very different kind of spy novel, I think, but 
Yeah. I don't know. I, I don't, I'm still very fresh on this reading. So I'm still trying to make up my mind on a few things. I think I just don't know how, I guess there's a way in which I don't know how quite to read this one um, or precisely to, to, to react to it. Um, it's such a, it's such a departure in some significant ways from, from his other work. And yeah, I'm curious. I'm curious what you would think, what, what you might think about that, Laurie. Do, do you well, think he's doing something? Am I on something? Or would you, would you say I'm on something of the correct path and saying that he's doing something very different here than he done than he's done previously? Yeah. I've been wrestling with this concept as well, that, in so many ways, this is signature Moraeus in terms of the themes, in, cer- in terms of the style and the syntax. But there's, I personally felt bogged down in the Ruan par- portion of this book. I thought that it, it felt to me like it was treading a lot of water. Um, you know, there were parts with Inez, but then Inez has this friend, I guess you could say, a, a drug runner. And so there was a lot of back and forth with with him. Um, I guess I guess my my two questions in my mind, and and maybe bouncing it to you, uh, just playing tennis here, not not really answering very effectively what you asked me. But um, why this book? Why did he write this book? And do we really see Tomas evolving from? from the Berta Isla book. I mean, sure. He's, you know, he comes back from this mission and, you know, says, you know, now, um, now I'm done for good. Um, but if Moraes had lived another five years, would we have seen a third sequel to this, to this storyline? Um, I just, I just kind of feel like there wasn't, there wasn't enough movement in Tomas to make this a compelling read. And I guess that's why I said at the start that I wish that, that this, this last novel was a different novel. I would have liked to have seen a whole different set of characters and a whole different um, situation still within the, still within the Moraes body of concerns and through lines, but but something that we're we're just not going back over this guy's you know hand wringing about I want to be somebody in the world and you know and what what's the right thing to do because I feel like we really got a, a lot of that in Berta Isla and I, I to me Berta Isla was was is a better book because I think that this one is just. Um, rehashing perhaps a lot of the, I don't want to say it's redundant, but it's, it's, it's rehashing this, these concerns of Tomas's that I don't think have moved that much to make it more interesting or a significant addition to, to Berta. And and on your point of like, would we have seen another one? There are, there are at least a couple lines towards, you know, the end where, you know, he says he's out he goes, you know, of course, until next time, which could mean, you know, could mean that he could always be pulled back in, like he's already been pulled back in once, or it could actually mean that because this is also being written from 
I mean, it's being written in Tomas's voice, but from a good bit past this point. He talks about doing online searches in order to bring up certain names and specific dates um, that he also, early in the book, Tomas talks about how his memory isn't that great, which isn't exactly shocking given what we know about Tomas. There is a point in reading this where I almost felt like this novel was <laughs> in the service of uh, getting to spend more time with Tupra than, um, than it was really about Tomas and Evanson. Um, I, I mean, you asked would um, Marius have liked Tomas Evanson. I don't know that he would have liked Burton Fortum Trupra. I am quite convinced he would have had a great time sparring with Tupra. He would have had, he would have delighted in, in those conversations and the thrust and repost and back and forth and all that. Um, but that doesn't, that makes sense because he sees Tupra much more as a novelist and as a writer of lives than um, Nevinson ever is, right? Um, we we first meet Tupra in um, Marius's work uh, in Your Face Tomorrow, unless I'm totally missing when he showed up earlier, but in Your Face Tomorrow and the whole bit about, I mean, we'll get into a lot of this, is people who can essentially the organization that Tupra is running in your face tomorrow, the early version of it is showing up here. And what he wants are people who can see, who can look at another person and immediately know all about their lives. And that is something that is very much plainly stated by Tupra about Tomas, that Tomas is completely incapable of doing, that he cannot see, that he is not useful in that. Like he's great at being an agent in the field and and becoming a new person and um, executing orders and running a mission, but he cannot look at someone else and immediately tell you everything about them. Well, um, not only everything about their lives, but also predict how they're going to react and act in future situations. And this gets back to, I guess, our empty suit discussion because compared to Tupra. Thomas Nevinson is in is in a way just a mimic, right? He can yeah. he can assume any personality and any accent and speaks fluently, you know, eight, nine, ten languages. But um, but yeah, he doesn't he doesn't have he doesn't have that complex analytical um determinative mind, I think, that, that Tupra has. And you're right. Um, gee, I guess I, in some ways I wish there was more Tupra in this book. And in every way, I wish we had 20 more years of Javier Moraes and maybe we would have had four more Tupra novels. Right. Tu Tupra as his uh, George Smiley um, running throughout, which, I mean, Lucare is the obvious like comp in some ways to the kind of novel that he's that he's doing here um, in a way, not, not very cleanly, but, but similarly, I think I wanted to actually just highlight one. Uh, this is a little bit of a tangent, but um, towards the end of the novel, um, there's a paragraph. Um, if you have your copy like nearby uh, page 570, um, where he's thinking about a time that he, so Tomas is thinking back to, 
instances in his past where women had had so much that women he'd been with had so much to drink that they'd fully blacked out and then asked him the next day if anything had happened or that sort of thing. Um, but the way he says it is Centurion had never resorted to using such methods himself, but he had in his time been with two different women on two separate occasions, both of whom had drunk so heavily one night that a few days later and so on and so on. What I found so interesting about that is that given the kind of work that Nevinson has done over his career, he's he's got to be talking about different missions, but he's assigning the name Centurion to those other people when that would absolutely not have been his name in either instance. So he's kind of created this entirely different, this different self. There is a different self, or at least he, I, I don't know if he's forming it in this moment um, or, you know, retroactively forming it, but, one of the things you asked is whether or not um, Nevinson evolves um, in this novel. Um, and I think he does purely within the sense of evolution as like a change over time, not necessarily a change towards anything greater or, or what have you, but just changing. And I think that as much as he physically changed over his 20 years um, as an agent and 10 years in hiding or you know, how, how the timeline works out, um, he didn't change as a person. He was an amber, constantly taking on new identities, occasionally popping back into the world as Tomas Nevinson. But really, there wasn't a different person operating there. There was there was no progression, no change uh, as to who Tomas Nevinson was. And by the end of this novel, I think he has changed into something else. And in some ways, I think he's become a, a Tomas Nevinson, a much more, a much more substantial or as substantial as he can become of a person. Um, Why do you think that? I think because of his, I think partially because of his refusal to finish the job. Um, I think because he wants, he wants to be back with Berta. He, it isn't just a matter of passing time and this is just where their relationship is any longer. He wants, it seems to me, he wants the relationship with, with his wife, not just with the woman he's been married to and has children with and still, still sees every so often and lives near. Um, he's trying to reforge a relationship. But within the context of everything he's done previously, I don't know. I just feel like there, I feel like there is a change there and a movement, a movement back towards Berta. Uh, Berta does get the last word in this novel. She does. And what you were just saying kind of points back to what you said previously in that, you know, he, at the end, he wishes he were the Tomas Nevinson that was still back at Oxford before he got recruited. And yeah, my, my question to you about does he change wasn't necessarily, is there a redemption here? Whatever you might think capital R redemption means, which I agree with you. I don't think there is, but I, I guess I just was wondering what your thoughts were with, you know, whether we're seeing any kind of, of movement. And I think that you, you answered it well. Um, and maybe I mean, maybe you're making me doubt a little bit that this novel really wasn't something that Marius needed to write. I mean, needed to write. I mean, in some ways, yeah. I I would have loved. I mean, I like Berta. I think the way Berta thinks is fascinating. Um, 
and that's a character that you watched like just change throughout that novel, become different people over time while still having a, a certain core. Um, so, and there, there, are, and, and I do agree with you that a lot of the Ruan portion dragged. I mean, I think in some ways that's the nature of that town. Um, <laughs> it, it seems like the kind of place where years can slip by. Um, which would make it a perfect hideout for so, for someone trying to go underground. Of course, there were definitely portions of that where I kind of I got to a point of like, okay, we've we've had this thought process a few times already. Um, let's let's keep this moving. Let's move on to the next bit. I mean, he he seemed to be kind of marking time um, throughout. I mean, it's not a short book; it's six hundred plus pages, and it. I don't know. There are others of his books that I almost felt like could have been longer. As if this one got six hundred, you know, maybe a heart. So obviously, a heart so white is a is not short, but it's a pretty uh, pretty lean machine that works incredibly well. So maybe it doesn't need to be longer. But I wouldn't mind spending more time in, in that person's head. Yeah, I guess um, it, it would be interesting to understand. Um, how much of Moraes's later works were edited and whether or not mm. if, if they were, whether there was some kind of concession here that he's not around to, um, to approve edits or, or cuts or anything. So maybe we just leave it. I don't know what the timing was in terms of how finished the Spanish manuscript was at the point that he died. Um, well, it, I mean, it was already out in Spain at that point, wasn't it? Perhaps it was. Um, but I mean, the point about you know, your point about how much editing was still taking place for him is, is I think, a really good one. I don't know. There were moments where in this novel and just sort of the thought process that was going on where Tomas just or I don't even want to attribute it to Tomas. The way it was written felt old. Like it felt like the writings of someone who was trying to lay out what they thought of the world. Um, it almost felt more directly. I don't know. It felt in some ways it felt more directly like Marius was trying to speak directly to the reader in, in, in a much balder way than he has in his other work. Um, less of the complications and more of the, this is how the world has changed and in some, and casting some judgments on that. Um, yeah. There are at least three, there are at least three instances, sorry, there are at least three instances of him talking about um, how much more civilized it was in the nineties when you could smoke indoors, which, you know, okay, sure. Sure. Javier. I get A it. little bit self-serving perhaps. A little bit. Um, but just listening to you now reminded me of something that you mentioned at the beginning. And that is these like um, seemingly very generalized um, it's almost digressions, but it's how the book starts with like, you know, the, the discussion about Hitler and the people that had an opportunity to, to kill Hitler. There's a big discussion about beheadings and like, you know, people choosing to be standing while they were beheaded or, or kneeling. Um, I think, was it, was it Marie Antoinette or I forget who Anne Boleyn? Uh, but well, both come up, but um, Anne Boleyn in particular, he goes on about how she was 
her head was laid down. Yeah, all that. Yeah, yeah it's, it was. Um, it felt like it took um, fifty pages to really for the story to get moving, and then mm-hmm. and then even though the the scene with Tupra seemed to be in some ways interminable, but it was, it was very enjoyable um, because mm-hmm. of all the humor and just super is just a fascinating character. But then again, you know, I, like I said, I thought I felt like it got boggy when they were in Ruan and maybe you're right. Maybe that was absolutely intentional because the cadence of the place being a smaller town where everyone knows everyone was just slower, you know, I don't know. I, it, it it pains me to to fault this book because <laughs> yeah. um, it's his last one, and it, like you, he's such a seminal author in my life. But I have, I think I'd say just if I had to give a general statement that this one didn't really live up to my expectation. Unfortunately, I would tend to agree with that. I mean, having said that, like there are many writers working right now that would be that if this that this was this would be one of their peaks as a novel. I mean there's still so many he's still such an amazing stylist and when he gets on to a really good thought thread the digressions in the pages just flow and are so gorgeous and so engaging and interesting but I I do think it doesn't it doesn't there's something about it that just doesn't quite work and it isn't it is not quite to the level of the other work and I I mean I said before we started recording that I thought as a novel like structurally this one might work a little better than Berta just because I felt like the scene that the revelation of how Tom Nevinson gets pulled into the secret service felt like such a deus ex machina to me that it really like off kiltered that novel. But as we've been talking about it, even with that Berta, it's awesome. Well, it's also frankly just that Berta is a much more interesting character than, than Tom Nevinson. Um, She's thoughtful and reflective in a way that is engaging. Tom spends a lot of time and, you know, I mean, I, I mentioned how much the Shakespeare shows up throughout here and the repetition of the Elliot and all that. And um, on the one hand, that's interesting. On, on the other hand, it could simply be that, uh, uh, yeah, again, I, I think I already said this. It, it could simply be that Tom Nevinson just can't quite grasp it. So it keeps rattling around his head. Um, so he keeps thinking the same thoughts and pondering the same the same quandaries that others like Tupra would have dispensed with quite, quite some time ago. Well, I want to absolutely agree with you. I would be very hard pressed if someone came into my bookstore um, tomorrow to give them a novel that was published this year that I think is better than Thomas Nevinson. My expectation for this novel are based upon this like sky high pinnacle that I put yeah. Javier Moraes on. Yeah, you're you're right. He's he's better than ninety nine point nine 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 percent of all the writers out there. I think I would never pick this as his best novel, and I don't no. know that you would either. But um, but having said that, gee, you know, like who 
who's coming out with a better novel this year. It's, it's it would be tricky. Yeah, it's going to be interesting when we get to our uh, Your Face Tomorrow episodes where we get to hang out with uh, Bertie Tupra again a bit and really kind of get into a uh, the Marius the Marius at um, full throttle, full speed, height of his powers, um, writing a very a very different kind of uh, a spy novel, ghost story, what have you. And I think in our next very next episode, though. Um, we're going to be talking about, I think, what might be my favorite um, other than Your Face Tomorrow, and that is Thus Bad Begins. I love that novel. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about that one. It is not my favorite, so it'll be fun to kind of dig into that a bit. I mean, it's great. Um, it's just, it's not my top one. I think... I don't know, probably sounds a little basic to say, but I think a heart's outside of your face tomorrow. I think a heart so white might be might be my favorite. A heart so white or all souls, but all souls just occupy such a special place in my heart because it was the first one I read. Um, I, I I understand why Marius is probably best known, at least internationally, for a heart so white, um, because in a, in a lot of ways it is kind of the perfectly structured, reasonably sized novel. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, it, it takes, it, it probably requires someone that really loves Marais to get through what the 1500 pages of all three volumes of your face tomorrow. It might even be more than 1500 pages, but um, that's a lot. That's a lot of Marais, Um and a lot of the same set of characters to be following, you know, through, through a trilogy. Um, so yeah, our hearts, our hearts are white is really great, but I do, I do love um, Thus Bed Begins. And it's, it's such an intriguing, I think, set of characters in that book too. And a little bit of a, a different, you know, I think we talked in the bio section about how Moraes was um, very much into film and mm-hmm. his uncle, um, I think was a filmmaker Yes. So um, this gets into that film aspect too, which I think was very interesting. I have to say, we, we made the choice to um, change up the order of things because we were going to go somewhat chronologically. Uh, our initial idea for this project was to go somewhat chronologically through Marius's work um, with some detours along the way. But switching things up um, and doing Berta Isla and Tomas Evanson now and saving your face tomorrow for the end, I think... In some ways, I think it does Marius's work justice. I think it's also because I don't think either one of us love Tomas Nevinson the way we love some of his other work. It's nice not to end on this one, which I think maybe sounds a little coarse, but um, yeah, an ex- a really fascinating work, but um, and representative of a lot of Marius's concerns, and maybe maybe more broadly representative of his own personal um, beliefs uh, and philosophy, um, but um, not not his not his greatest work. Um, I don't think by by any means. I guess one. I mean, I think I feel like we're getting to the, the wrapping up point. But one thing I did want to mention um, is that he does bring. So on top of all the Shakespeare that comes in and his character quoting 
one of his own novels and the T.S. Eliot and so on and so on. Um, he also brings Guillermo Cabrera Infante into the novel. And I don't know that, I don't believe I mentioned this in the bio, but um, bio portion, but uh, Marius was very, very close with Cabrera Infante. Um, he was one, uh, have you read any of Cabrera Infante's work? I have not. Can you explain a little bit who he is? Uh, so Guillermo Cabrera Infante was a, was a Cuban writer. Um, he also <laughs> actually worked as a diplomat. Um, he was a diplomat for um, the Castro regime um, and uh, in many ways uh, backed that revolution. Um, but as the revolution moved into some of its more excesses, uh, turned against it and lived out the majority of his life in Madrid uh, in exile. Um, he also played a pretty, as I understand it, a pretty significant significant role in the lives of a number of young Spanish writers, um, including Marius, who is part of that circle. Um, uh, Cabrera Infante uh, was a Duke of Redonda um, and died, uh, I think, in the 2000s, if I remember correctly. But um, one of his, uh, I mean, his great work, um, which I'm not even attempt to do in the Spanish, uh, translates to three trapped tigers. Um, and it's been, you know, it's, it gets the usual, the, the Cuban Ulysses sort of take, but it is this explosive. I, it is such a wild, wildly language driven, bombastic novel of uh, Havana that is just, it's thrilling. Like it, it took me two tries to get into it simply because the voice at first, I couldn't figure out what the hell was going on. And I just felt like, all right, step back. Let's try this again uh, in, in a few weeks. Um, but once you get into the rhythm of it, my God, it's an impressive, impressive novel. But um, he actually has Nevinson as uh, having met Cabrera Infante at one point um, under the guise, I believe, of a of a novel of a novelist. I, I believe he says. Um, bear with me one second while I locate it. But basically, it's uh, Cabrera Infante reflecting on um, murderers. I mean, there's a lot of talk of fanaticism, um, dogma, re- religiosity uh, throughout this novel, which makes sense given the work that the work that Nevinson is, is involved in. Um, so yes, yeah, so Nevinson approached uh, Cabrera, the Anglo Cuban writer Cabrera Infante, as he describes him um, saying he'd been living in exile actually in London. Um, but this is uh, Cabrera Infante discussing uh, that what he calls terrorists, those supposedly ideas, idealistic liberators um, who are first and foremost clever, cunning killers. Um, all those people, young and old, who adorn their walls with that Che Guevara poster as if he were Elvis or the Immaculate Conception, have chosen not to find out what he was like in real life. And they cover their ears if you tell them and look at you as if you were a worm. After all, that's what the Castro regime had their international acolytes call us, isn't it? Gusanos. And then he he goes on for quite a bit talking about um, the liberators, the terrorists as he refers to them and how they had a a taste for blood um 
in terms of, again, uh, Maria's speaking directly to us, I think him bringing in one of his mentors who had such a very specific and personal interaction with um, revolution and with um, what throughout the novel would be considered a, a form of um, dogma and fanaticism, to have him dropped in like that, I think is him tipping his hand. And that's something that I don't think Marius does too often in his other books. I think he, I think he engages, I think he poses questions. Um, and I think his characters make decisions, but I don't think that Marius necessarily is speaking directly to us in his other books, the way he is in this one. So by including that, that passage that you just read, are are you, are you thinking that Marius is addressing the reader in terms of uh, saying that in some instances, violence is justified? No, I mean, I, I think, I think Marius is in some ways defending the state here. Okay. Um, I think he is defending the idea of a social order um, and that, you know, the democratic process while corrupted, corrupt, corruptible, corrupted um, is is the way to move forward and that violent revolution, um, no matter how it starts, doesn't go, doesn't, doesn't end well, frankly. Um, I mean, it, it strikes me as a, yeah, as sort of an institutionalist um, conservative viewpoint. Um, so then would you take it a step further and saying that he, Moreas, doesn't support the actions of the Basque separatist at uh, the IRA, but that then he thinks that Tomas's mission was morally justified. I mean, put to it like that. Um, yeah. I mean, I think, I think he would side with Tupra that you make the decision and you move on. And I feel very strange discussing what I think a, you know, one of the great novelists of the last however long, what he, what his political beliefs were from his novels and the like, that's breaking, I think, a lot of rules. But I think this novel also broke quite a few of those rules and how, how he addressed, how he addressed things, addressed choices, addressed actions. Um, but yeah, I, I think... I think ultimately Marius um, would largely agree with the notion that um, the realm, the state acting to nip things in the bud, as it were, um, is morally the right thing for them to do. And I'm not quite sure how I feel about him saying that. That's, that's a really interesting observation um and a really interesting line of reasoning on your part tom in terms of um just the sources of the of the quotes like the infanta the the, the cuban um writer um to kind of connect those dots well we can't ask Marius, unfortunately no and 
you know, who knows if he knows if he'd even be willing to respond. Um, but I do think, yeah, I don't know. As a little bit of a, I mean, we have a lot more of his work to discuss, but as a little bit of a, a coda on, on this one, um, I do think he left us with a, an incredible novels and fictions and writings that just give us so much insight and such an interesting uh, toolbox for how people think and how um, how decisions are made um, and what we owe each other. A really interesting moral philosophy. And yeah, it's, yeah, it's been, this is me game modeling again. It's been a, some more than something of a privilege reading his work, I feel. I agree. A, a brilliant, brilliant mind and just a, a marvelous writer. I think it's going to be quite a while before we see another like him. Agreed. All right. We'll, we'll put away our, our uh, tissues and our tears and um, happily we've still got some more books to talk about. So that's many, many more books to talk about and many more books with allusions to Shakespeare and Shakespeare in the titles and on, on and on. And, and it, it's, it's going to continue to be very fun. Okay. Look forward to it, Tom. Bye, Lori. <laughs>